Welcome to this edition of Law Radio. I'm Kate Galloway. It's the 15th of July 2016, and earlier this week, an international tribunal in The Hague handed down a finding about China's behaviour in the South China Sea. And the finding has caused ructions in the international community. Today, Melissa Caston interviewed Associate Professor Douglas Guilfoyle from Monash University, who is a specialist in the law of the sea. Let's have a listen now to what he has to say about the background of this dispute and what's happening on the international stage. Okay, Doug, so can you explain to me what this new case about the South China Sea is all about? Okay, so in 2013, uh, the Philippines brought a case against China under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. And the reason they did that is that China had been using what it calls its nine-dash line to assert that certain things the Philippines was doing within 200 miles of its coast uh, were an infringement on waters over which China had special rights or some form of sovereignty. So they were protesting things like Philippines uh, fishing vessels fishing there or fi- the Philippines licensing oil exploration. Now, if we're in Australia, we have a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone. No one challenges it. Well, there's obviously a dispute with East Timor, but for 90% of it, it's perfectly uncontroversial that within that 200 miles, the only fishing or oil exploration that will happen is ours. Now, If two states have overlapping entitlements, fine, you'll get a conflict. But China was dealing with things, that areas that were hundreds and hundreds of miles away from its coast. If you Google Nine Dash Line, you get a map where uh, the Chinese authorities have sort of drawn this big, bold, dotted line, which encloses effectively 90% of uh, sort of the the common high seas area of the South China Seas and goes to within 50 nautical miles of the coast of, say, the Philippines and Vietnam. So would you call this an ambit claim? Uh, something like that, something like that. Uh, and was and the Philippines the only country that was in conflict over this enlarged claim area? In a sense, what China has tried to do is create a situation where it's in a series of bilateral negotiations about its ambit claim uh, for the obvious reason that it's China and all the other states in the region are much smaller. And in that situation, obviously, in a bilateral negotiation, the major power is going to come out better. So, And ASEAN was not, until very recently, doing much collectively about this. I mean, this dispute's actually been brewing, for, from my memory, 30 years, 20 years, uh, quite on, a long time. On and off in various forms. But the Nine Dash Line really came to prominence in 2009, when Vietnam lodged a claim with the UN Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf saying, we think we've got a continental shelf that extends beyond 200 nautical miles into the South China Sea, and uh, China put in a diplomatic note saying, see the attached map of our nine-dash line, we have uncontroverted sovereign rights throughout these waters that are long known to the international community and have never previously been protested. So uh, the debate in a sense, has been over things like island building in the Spratly Islands, the Scarborough Shoal and Mischief Reef, these collection of small marine features that sort of span uh, 
the South China Seas in, in an arc up from kind of Indonesia and Malaysia through towards the Philippines. And the argument, to some extent, has been over whether these things... So we say the Spratly Islands, mm. but a legal question is whether they are, in fact, mm. islands. Or just reefs or rockeries or right, exposed right. areas at low tide but right. unexposed at high tide. Yep, so the critical distinction under the Law of the Sea Convention is threefold. An island, uh, which is a naturally formed area of land that's above water at high tide, gets you... It's like sovereign territory. It gets mm. you everything that the mainland does. So mm -hmm. it gets you the, the big, the 12 nautical mile territorial sea and the big 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone with control over resources. So an island's really valuable. But a rock, which is also an area of land that's above water at high tide, but which is incapable of sustaining human habitation or economic activity, gets you only a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. So better than nothing, but not as good as an mm -hmm. island then the worst case scenario is the thing you're dealing with is only uh, what's called a low tide elevation. So at low tide, some stuff sticks out of the water, mm -hmm. but at high tide, it's all submerged. Mm. And that will typically be the situation with, say, a reef. Mm -hmm. And a low tide elevation gets you nothing. And control over it just depends on whose maritime zone it's in. Right, but Doug, if I stick a whole lot of concrete pylons in my low... Uh, yep. you know, in, in my low tide elevation and then build a concrete platform on top of it and then put some other wooden structures hanging off the side, haven't I got myself an island? You'd think, but no, what you've got yourself is an artificial island. So, uh, because the definition of island is naturally formed. Right. And above water at high tide. So if you make an artificial island, all it gets is a 500-metre safety zone. Okay. Because the paradigm model of an artificial island is actually basically an oil and gas platform. Okay. So where did all these rules come from? They come from the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea of 1982, uh, which contains both new rules and kind of an omnibus collection of previous treaties, largely from the 1950s, mm. dealing with the Law of the Sea. So the aim of the Law of the Sea Convention was to have one comprehensive package deal dealing with oceans governance. And normally treaties allow you to uh, lodge a reservation about any bit you don't like mm. because the founding principle in international law is state consent. But UNCLOS, the Convention on the Law of the Sea, was uniquely or near uniquely negotiated as a take-it-or-leave-it package deal. Right. And the powerful thing for the Philippines was it was a take-it-or-leave-it package deal that came with, as part of the price of admission, compulsory dispute settlement. Okay, so what is the dispute settlement mechanism under, under the law of the sea? Right, so this, the starting proposition under what's called Part 15 of the Convention is that any dispute concerning the interpretation or application of the Convention is subject to compulsory dispute settlement if the parties don't settle it by peaceful means of their own choosing first. So that's a really powerful starting proposition. Mm. Everything's in. There are, however, a number of kind of complex exceptions, the, the biggest one dealing with uh, exclusive economic zones. So there, there is a combination of automatic exceptions mm. and optional exceptions. So while you can't lodge a reservation to the treaty, you can lodge a declaration saying, we want to take advantage of these opt-out clauses. Right. So starting principle for dispute resolution, everything is in unless it's out. So in the exceptions. But then some of the exceptions have further exceptions <laughs> that bring things back in. So I call it the hokey-cokey theory of jurisdiction. I was going to say it sounds like somebody's law exam. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a potential law exam nightmare. Don't tell my students that. Uh, but it, So everything's in until it's out unless something else brings it back in again. But this allowed the Philippines to bring a case 
However, the, the initial Chinese answer to this was, we have already lodged a declaration for one of the opt-outs concerning both maritime boundary delimitation disputes mm. and disputes involving historic bays or titles. Mm. And our response, China says, to your claim, uh, the Philippines, is threefold. First, what you really want to debate is sovereignty over these islands, and that's not a question that fits inside the convention at all. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's, uh, a question that's a... prior to the convention, right. who is sovereign over things that generate zones. There's an argument to be had about that point, but the conventional view is that will be difficult or impossible to argue under UNCLOS. The second better point was, well, in effect, what they're trying to do by stealth is get a maritime boundary delimitation, because we reckon our boundary's here, they reckon it's not, mm. and we've got an opt-out covering that. And third, um, even if the first two arguments fail, this is about our claim to historic rights in the South China Seas, and the exception covers historic bays and historic titles. Right. So we win, we win, we win, <laughs> we have no case to answer, we're not even going to bother showing up. Right. To which the Philippines replied, no... We're not actually going to include in our claim anything about sovereignty or anything about the designation of boundaries. What we want is legal certainty about whether these various features in the seas constitute islands capable of generating 200 nautical mile zones or not. Mm. Because if they're not islands and they don't generate big zones, we don't have a boundary conflict. Right. Because there's You're nothing... You're not that, there. Yeah. China <laughs> isn't claiming anything close enough to us to generate a boundary conflict. Okay. And that was uh, a submission that was accepted by the tribunal. That left the further question of, but wait, isn't it out because of the historic title exception? Mm. And the tribunal took um, a view there that would be familiar to basically property students mm. and said, in effect, title is the complete bundle of sovereign rights you can exercise over territory or water. Mm. So that is what exists in land, territory, or the territorial sea. And in the territorial sea, you have this complete sovereignty subject only to a right that other states enjoy of innocent passage. Right. But on the high seas... Everyone gets freedom of navigation. Now, in a sense, what was critical was China had consistently said about the nine-dash line, we do not restrict or oppose freedom of navigation or overflight. Right. And the tribunal said, well, then what you're claiming are historic rights, not historic title. Okay. And the exception covers title, not claims of rights, even bundles of rights that, mm. Short, mm. that fall short of title. And in effect, whatever your historic claims were... To the extent they're incompatible with the convention, they've been superseded by the convention. Which you signed on to. Which, which <laughs> China... Uh, China was one of the original signatories in 1982. Right. They took their time ratifying it. That didn't come till 1996, but they've been parties for 20 years. Right. And they objected... China was present throughout the negotiations, mm. all nine years of negotiations, right. and objected during negotiations to the inclusion of compulsory dispute settlement. Okay. So let's just think this through. They were there for nine years of negotiation... They said compulsory dispute settlement is bad. Right. They signed but didn't ratify. They thought about it for 14 years and then signed up. Like, there's no available argument to China that they didn't know didn't what they really were getting get it. into. <laughs> now, I mean, that, that distinction between rights and title, that, that sounds to me like a quintessentially Western, as you say, property law kind of right. distinction. Yep. Does that... Does that read consistent in Chinese law or Chinese understanding of international law even? Uh, or is that... Uh, I've gone off the deep end. Well, I don't read Chinese. Uh, what I would say is that the tribunal bent over backwards to be 
in its absence, China refused to participate as scrupulously fair as it could be. Okay. Like every publicly available document the tribunal could lay its hands on, it quoted every statement from a foreign ministry official. Uh, China released a position paper on why the tribunal shouldn't hear the dispute that I think was in fact co-authored by a number of Western academics. Yeah. And the tribunal quoted that. They took into account everything they could. Um, to my mind, uh, China is basically, if you look at the history of it, this would not be the Chinese interpretation, yeah. but it's trying to have its cake and eat it too. Right. So they signed on to UNCLOS because the certainty of rights over maritime zones was worthwhile, and when they enacted domestic law in the 1990s, it used in Chinese translation, or from the, the Chinese official text of UNCLOS, word for word, the UNCLOS definitions, right. and they did not tack on to that legislation, and we claim special rights. Right, or this is how right. we understand it, or right. this is, right. you know, consistent but, but or inconsistent. Cer certainly the Chinese internal narrative is that, you know, uh, since the Opium Wars and the Boxer Rebellion, they have been continually subjected to external Western interference, that uh, international law is effectively a, a Western European construct, and the rules of the game are rigged against them. Mm. So on the one hand, they want to sign on to the treaty and get all the benefits, but they also want to claim special rights and status in their own backyard. And I, I think I'm not a sinologist. Uh, my knowledge of these things is imperfect, but the vision they seem to have is a return to a pre-19th century uh, Asian region in which they are the predominant benevolent power mm to which all other states should defer and, in a sense, pay tribute, mm. but then rely on the fact that they'll be treated well by China as kind of the central organising power that's a kind of feudal, in the region. That's a kind of feudal conception. That's that's the vibe I get. Yep. Like I say, I'm now talking beyond that's my okay. expertise. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. You've opened up a whole world of the law of the sea to us today. Over to you, Kate. You've been listening to Associate Professor Douglas Guilfoyle from Monash University talking about the current state of affairs in the South China Sea. This is Law Radio. You can follow us on SoundCloud and iTunes and take a look at our blog on lawradio.net. I'm Kate Galloway. See you next time.